Welcome to episode 26 of The Souvenir Shop. Which means astonishingly to me anyway, that this podcast is now six months old. Further, surprisingly large number of you who have listened, all I can say is thank you. And I hope you've enjoyed the episodes you've heard so far. I'll carry on posting new episodes on Sundays, as long as you carry on listening, although there might be the occasional break. From time to time, I'm also going to be putting out compilation episodes for people new to the podcast. All I ask in return is that you get my algorithm moving on up by liking, rating and perhaps even writing a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. And then tell your friends, family or anyone else you happen to bump into about this amazing little podcast with no adverts. And now, on with this week's episode. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 26. Ramadin and Valentine. An autographed cricket bat sits somewhere in my brother's attic. I never quite got the point of either autograph hunting or, for that matter, cricket. Take autographs. During its Ned Sheeran era, appearing on Radio 4's Loose Ends was a great way to spend a Saturday. The BBC sent a big car for you in the morning and gave you coffee and pastries when you arrived. Once the broadcast was over, Ned would host a lavish and heavily alcoholic brunch upstairs in the pub opposite Broadcasting House, which lasted well into the afternoon. Whatever the arguments for or against retaining the BBC, I struggle to think of a better use for the licence fee. On the journey from the studio to the pub, autograph hunters, waving their books in our faces, surrounded us. These were not the small books you see in stationery shops, You know, the ones with floral patterns and autographs in gold leaf on the cover. They were giant ledgers with post-it notes sticking out strategically from the side. To an outsider, it must have looked as if we were being set upon by a vicious gang of double-entry bookkeepers. Who are you? demanded one of them after I signed the book he thrust under my nose. Who indeed? I shrugged before walking on. I had an autograph book as a kid. I've no idea who gave it to me, but my uncle Laurie worked as a lighting director at London Weekend and agreed to fill it with famous names. It came back to me via my brother John, who made one creative addition to the friendly personalised messages from Shaw Taylor, Peter Gordino and the rest. On the last page, John had added... Love and Kisses from John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr. At eight years old, and for years afterwards, I thought they were genuine. As for cricket, I can't stand the interminable pace, the long gaps where nothing happens, and the ritualistic blather that still encrusts the game. Go back a couple of hundred years, and cricket was a roughhouse game played by farmhands, where fights, cheating and illicit gambling were the norm. Its later reputation for genteel restraint is as phony as the English sense of fair play. So, none of this explains why I share possession of a 1955 professional cricket bat crammed with autographs 
from most of the great players of that era, ordered by the teams, both county and country, that they represented. Both my paternal grandparents were big fans of the game. One afternoon in the 1980s, I paid a visit to my grandma to find her glued to the television watching the fifth test match in that year's Ashes series. I knew better than to disturb her, so I went into the kitchen to make us both a cup of tea. We sat together on the sofa in silence, save for the occasional slurping of the tea, until Grandma remarked, Cohen's having a good innings. I should explain that she was referring to the Afro-Caribbean star of the England side, Norman Cowens. It was one of the many traits common to Jews of my grandma's generation, to tenuously claim any star of stage, screen or sporting arena as one of our own. Thirty years earlier, my grandpa won the autographed bat at some or other posh charity tombola, and a decade later, spotting that his three grandsons still showed no real interest in the game, gave it to us in the hope that it would initiate a love of the thwack of leather against Willow. Looking at the names on both sides of the bat, even someone with no interest in the game like me might recognise a few of them. There's Alec Bedser, scourge of Australian batsmen. Len Hutton, the great Yorkshire and England opener. And Fred Truman, who crowned a career as England's finest bowler by presenting Indoor League on Yorkshire television in a beige safari suit. But my two favourite names appear together under the West Indies team. The spin bowlers, Sonny Ramadin and Alf Valentine. In the 1950s Test Series, England lost to the West Indies for the first time ever on their home turf at Lords. Did I say lost? What I really meant to say was thrashed, trounced or left with ice cubes down the back of their shirts. The young Windies' side's performance dragged the game into the modern era and they would soon dominate cricket for the next couple of decades. But that's enough about the actual game, because as with a lot of sport, the really interesting stuff happened beyond the boundary. Up until that second test at Lords, Britons were used to the restrained behaviour of the crowd. Mirroring the torpor of the game, it was common for the crowd to celebrate any action, be it a scratched single before bad light stops play, or Jack Hobbs scoring a century by the same gentle ripple of applause. Fans liked it that way, so much more civilised than that dreadful kicky ball game. This time, the visitors' support included new British citizens from the West Indies, and Lords shook with the joyful racket of cheers and shouts and steel bands as the visitors surgically took apart their colonial overlords. Before the 1950 series, cricket was still an old Commonwealth game dominated by England, Australia and South Africa. For the benefit of all of us, even curmudgeonly non-fans like me, the West Indies and their followers made the sport truly international. Of course, the Windies team already had a long and noble history. They became the fourth nation to participate in international tests 
as long ago as 1928. But until 1960, the old bigots running cricket still ruled that their side could only play test matches if their captain was white. Many of those in the crowd arrived in Britain a couple of years before on the Empire Windrush, among them a singer and songwriter named Aldwyn Roberts, who performed under his stage name of Lord Kitchener. He immediately dashed off a song called Victory Test Match, better known as Cricket Lovely Cricket. Sung by fellow artist Lord Beginner, the record was a huge summer hit bought by thousands, including my father. He played it occasionally, but mostly he sang it to me at bedtime. So when reading the two autographs on the bat, the chorus of Victory Test Match comes back to me. With those little pals of mine, Sonny Ramadin died in February 2022, aged 92, the last survivor of that remarkable test series. In 1950, he was a 21-year-old rookie who overcame two sets of colour prejudice by becoming the first Caribbean player of Indian origin in the squad. On the day he faced the might of England, his professional experience, like that of his even younger bowling partner Alf Valentine, amounted to precisely two first-class games. The romance of all this almost makes me want to love cricket. Just so long as I don't have to watch a game. That was Ramadin and Valentine, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe and write a review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 27. Life of an Actor. A small round papier-mâché snuffbox from the 19th century. The lid depicts a group of theatricals, some in costume, enjoying a social gathering. They stand in front of a large staircase, all attempting to outpose each other, with two of the group engaged in a fight. Above them on the staircase are two further members of the ensemble, one assisting a man in a top hat as he projects a spray of green vomit over the banister to the party below. The illustration bears the caption, Life of an Actor, at Refreshment. Before beginning this paragraph, I decided to simply Google Life of an Actor and arrived down a rabbit hole from which I am still reluctant to emerge. As I suspected, the box was one of a series, but the only other example from the same set I could find is held by the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. The box in the V&A, called Life of an Actor, Empty Boxes, depicts a play being performed to an almost entirely empty house. Both the V&A snuff box and mine were manufactured in 1840 by Henry Clay's Papier-Mâché Company of Birmingham. But there's more. 
The V&A page also told me how the illustration used on the box came from a book called, not surprisingly, Life of an Actor, by Pierce Egan, and published in 1825. Its success was in part due to Theodore Lane's extensive colour plates and engravings used to illustrate the book, and it is on the online edition of Egan's book that I found the original picture in all its technicolour glory. Pierce Egan was already an acclaimed author and satirist when he wrote the book. A few years earlier, in 1821, he wrote Life in London, which he later adapted for the stage. It was the first play to run for over a hundred performances in London, and its new title, Tom and Jerry, became slang for a rough alehouse in Britain and the name of a cocktail in America. But whether it gave its name to a cartoon cat and mouse has been fiercely disputed. My parents gave me the box as a parting gift in 1977 when I left home to start my three-year degree course at Hull University Drama Department. I still like to think that the scene depicted on the box, especially the man throwing up, was Mum and Dad's subtle way of saying, yes, we know what you're going to get up to at uni, and it's okay. By 1974, I had completed a couple of years of piano lessons at a place called the Chinkford School of Music. It was an imposing house inhabited by Mrs Kirk, the teacher, and her blind elderly sister. Lessons were held in the front drawing room at a slightly worn Challon Grand Piano. With its white gloss paint long made beige by Mrs Kirk's 40-a-day habit, and its ugly cabinets displaying spode china, the room looked unchanged since VE Day. Having already worked my way through Furelis and Karcherny's piano exercises, Mrs Kirk asked me if there were any particular pieces I would like to learn. Sitting in that stuffy room reeking of stale fags, I gave it some thought. I would like to play Chopin's waltz in C-sharp minor, I finally said. Mrs Kirk froze, cigarette hanging limply from her mouth and the blood drained from her face. You can't play that piece, she said. Oh, but I think I can. I used to watch my auntie Millicent play it, so I already know it quite well. No, no, you don't understand. That piece has brought terrible bad fortune to this house. I'm sorry, I... the last time someone played Chopin's waltz in C minor, my sister went blind. At which point I did the worst thing that anyone could do. I laughed. What's so funny? Do you think it's a joke? I apologised and we continued with the lesson. But her frosty demeanour thereafter told me that my days at the Chinkford School of Music were numbered. In any case, another branch of the arts had already presented itself. I had recently sat some or other grade exam at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama on John Carpenter Street in the City of London. There I picked up a leaflet advertising the college's Saturday morning theatre classes. Mrs Kirk's strange aversion to Chopin now served as the perfect excuse to tell my parents that my piano teacher was mad and I wanted to switch to drama classes at the Guildhall. And that's when the acting bug bit. 
I joined the class with my school friend David Jackson. Now I come to think of it, we weren't really friends up until that point. My mother knew his mother and casually mentioned to her something about drama classes. He was far in advance of me academically, good at sports and unlike me he was popular. It looks a little sad now, but being befriended by an alpha male definitely upped my own social status, if only marginally. I remained awkward, acnied, weedy, easily wound up and therefore easily bullied, but life became more tolerable once it was acknowledged that I was a mate of David's. Saturday mornings at Guildhall became the focal point of my week. I caught the main line from Himes Park at four minutes past nine every Saturday and changed onto the circle line at Blackfriars. Guildhall was housed in a building which looked, and still looks, grand and imposing on the outside, but was scruffy and chaotic inside. A rabbit warren of studios and offices smelling of wax polish and dry rot, with staircases leading nowhere and a faint underfloor chatter of small rodents. It was at Guildhall that I learned the importance of finding one's tribe. Like school, I was among teens of my own age, but these ones knew about Pinter and Wesker and Edward Bond. They were kids who happily joined me or included me in queuing for cheap seats at the National Theatre or afternoons prowling the West End. There were also girls. Yes, they were gorgeous and way out of my league, but at least they knew I existed and even laughed at my lame jokes. It finally occurred to me that my position as the most unfanciable boy in Chingford needn't necessarily be a permanent one. In my schoolwork, partly due to my dad's influence, it was in science subjects that I excelled. And right up until the sixth form, this is where I thought my future career lay. So it was with some trepidation that at 16, I announced to my parents that I wanted to go on stage. Mum was quite relieved that I was following something that clearly inspired me. Dad was okay with it, as long as I went via the degree route rather than drama school. Not a problem. The number of applicants to study drama at university versus the number of places was only about 300 to 1. A few universities interviewed me, but quite unexpectedly, it was at Hull that I again found my tribe, and they immediately offered me a place. The fear of leaving King's Cross Station alone with a suitcase in October 1977 was nothing when set against the thrill of anticipation, coupled with the joy of leaving all my Chingford adolescent baggage behind. Hull, in those pre-Humber Bridge days, was considered a backwater with its white telephone boxes and permanent smell of either fish or the whole brewery. It was isolated, not on the way to anywhere, and this remoteness helped forge talents and friendships that are still strong over four decades later. In the end, my three years studying drama at Hull taught me that I wasn't cut out for the life of an actor. What I was cut out for was uncertain, but that's another story. That was Life of an Actor, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 28. The Masterpiece. A pottery hedgehog made from two conjoined thumb pots, with the spines created from passing clay lumps through a sieve. Its brown glaze has lasted well over the last four and a half decades, even though it serves as a doorstop for our study room. A slot at the top indicates its original purpose as a piggy bank, although it has never held any coins. For various reasons, I'm rather fond of it. What becomes of the untalented, as Jimmy Ruffin might have sung in a follow-up single? What happens if you really want to do something, but you're rubbish at it? Do you give up? Try harder? Or do you simply plough on regardless, hoping things will change? A few years ago, my wife Anita, for a birthday treat, booked the two of us onto a weekend 3D art course in central London. It all started well. The teacher and the other students were delightful. The tasks ahead explained in detail, and everyone, me included, was eager to crack on. And crack on everyone did. Except for me. By lunchtime, the entire class, bar myself, was already well into creating a 3D masterpiece out of wire and paper. I had just about created something resembling a failed miniature version of the Blue Peter advent calendar. And by late afternoon, my personal hell was complete, as each pupil's work was displayed and held up for scrutiny. I chickened out of day two, cowering at home to binge-watch Peaky Blinders, rather than suffer further humiliation. I like art. I know how banal that sounds, a bit like saying I like food. But more specifically, I see myself as someone who is excited by art. Someone who enjoys popping into the National Gallery or Tate Modern if I'm nearby. I've taken the time to learn about art and the work of artists, even ones I don't admire. Sit me down and I will happily pontificate on the glory of Vermeer, the tragedy of Rothko, or the pros and cons of Gilbert and George. Press me on the latter, and I might even describe a scene in the Pride of Spitalfield's pub off Brick Lane, around 1985, where I witnessed George loudly espouse the wonders of the English public school system to a bemused group of Bangladeshi garment workers. What I can't do is make art. Tell me to draw a picture of a car, and it will no doubt look like something produced by an enthusiastic seven-year-old boy, with no sense of form, perspective or dimension. This is all the more frustrating for someone at the end of a long line of talented artists. My mother's watercolours have sold at Bonhams and been licensed as Athena Prince. My great-uncle Simon studied art at the Académie Julien in Paris and I've already spoken at length about my brother John's brilliance as a cartoonist, long before he became a writer. 
Even my father used to make glass animals as presents for my mother when they were courting. All of them had a keen sense of form and design and imagination, coupled with the ability to realise all three. I have all of those, except for the last part. My two left hands always hobble my artistic intentions and sensibilities. Well, perhaps not always, because even the worst of us can have one good day. As I've already prattled on about, during the 80s and 90s, I was a regular performer on the London comedy circuit. At most gigs, I watched hopeful new comedians take to the stage to perform a five-minute unpaid guest spot. Try to envisage a hostile audience booing and heckling the poor sap off stage, and you would most likely be wrong. It was often worse. A lot of audiences are kinder to rookie comics than you think, so when a comedian fails, they mostly encounter silence, followed by a rising hubbub of the audience chatting amongst themselves and politely ignoring the car crash on stage. Every comedian experiences this at some time in their career, and I can assure you that when a comic talks about dying, they are not using a metaphor. A part of you actually dies. But there are exceptions. Those nights where, even for the worst act, everything goes right. Nights when, for some inexplicable reason, the routine which caused death the night before receives barrages of laughter and wild applause. Comedians are wont to reference these bright spots as the ones that made them carry on and help them mould their comic personas into the Harry Hills or Sarah Pascoes we see today. My own artistic bright spot happened when I was 15. In the midst of revising for my O-levels, I needed to create a portfolio for my art CSE. For the benefit of younger listeners, the Certificate of Secondary Education was a way for schools to reward less able students with a certificate which carried absolutely no weight in the outside world. I know I must have created something else for the examiners to peruse, but all that remains of my artistic canon is the hedgehog. Without thinking about it too hard, the inspiration of two thumb pots, an attached face, and clumps of clay pressed through a sieve created a ceramic animal whose kitsch is only matched by its execution and brilliance of design. The CSC results always preceded the O-level ones, and the letter from the examination board told me that my first ever grade in a public examination was four. In other words, my efforts, hedgehog included, were one grade above what I would have achieved simply by submitting a piece of paper with my name and the date scribbled at the top. My O-level results were good enough to make me quickly forget the art CSE and I forged onward to A-levels. Halfway through my first term of my sixth form, I was asked to go to the art room and collect my portfolio, which, hedgehog included, was cluttering up the store cupboard. Mr Dishington, my erstwhile art teacher, collared me during my walk of shame. He stood with me in the storeroom and pointed to my creative efforts on the top shelf. You know, Matthew, if you'd applied yourself more, I'm sure you would have achieved something. I looked doubtful. I mean it. 
See that hedgehog? It's as good as anything I've seen this year. It's well made, it looks great, and I'd even bet you enjoyed making it. What stopped you from showing a bit more effort with everything else? I nodded and stuffed my portfolio into a Sainsbury's carrier bag before making a quick getaway. This conversation stuck with me because there was so much more I wanted to say. Mr Dishington, when not teaching art in a Chingford Comprehensive School, was a professional illustrator and newspaper cartoonist who successfully quit his day job a few years later. I don't doubt his skill and commitment, honed through years of practice and false starts, but he surely wouldn't have got anywhere without possessing at least some spark of artistic sensibility, some skill and awareness of space and proportion, without, I believe I'm looking for the word, talent. I'm sure in his own mind the teacher's words were encouraging, but it felt like a put-down. If I'd had a club foot and finished last in every sports day race but won the egg and spoon, I'm certain my sports teacher wouldn't have castigated me for not trying hard enough elsewhere. But the hedgehog, instead of providing a memento of the one day I got things right, merely highlighted my total failure as a visual artist on every other day before or since. But it does make a great doorstop. That was The Masterpiece, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe and leave a review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 28. The Pebble. A small, roundish pebble painted dark green and featuring a white letter Z. I remember exactly where I was for the enhancement of this piece of nondescript stone, and why. In the death throes of my university career, around June 1980, I cut short revising for my final exam in Chinese and Japanese theatre and went straight to the Union Bar. This ugly cavernous room featured a long bar, a jukebox, two pinball machines and a mass of brown chipboard booth seating resembling cattle pens. I'd had enough of revising. Any understanding of kabuki theatre I didn't possess by now would certainly not materialise during the final hours before the exam. Sitting in one of those cattle pens was my friend Mark with his girlfriend in deep conversation. I sat down opposite them. We've been waiting for you, he said. Really? This was uncharacteristic of Mark. How do you fancy taking the lesson and death watch to Edinburgh? He was referring to the classic absurdist plays by Ionesco and Genet we had each directed as part of our final year project. For both of us, they were an academic and critical high point in our otherwise
theatre-middling three years at Hull University Drama Department. All thoughts of Oriental theatre were put aside as we discussed the logistics of getting our productions to the Edinburgh Fringe. I already knew that a mature student in the year below had taken on a venue there and was managing another company in our department, and that he had a spare lunchtime slot that needed to be filled. We named our troupe Z Theatre Company, because the all-important Edinburgh Fringe programme was still being typeset and we needed to ensure our company's inclusion when they reached the end of the alphabet. And like many practical conclusions that sit behind marketing decisions, the name stuck. People liked its simplicity. But, as with all ventures, the main issue was money. We held raffles, borrowed money off parents, sold our course books, wrote begging letters, pulled any stunt which might add to our modest coffers. In amongst these was the free market stall we took on on the main concourse at our student union. This is how I ended up with four other people in a student bedroom fashioning earrings out of feathers and surgical wire and painting pebbles with the letter Z, all intended to be sold to raise funds. Why anyone would want to spend 30 pence on a hastily painted pebble is still a mystery to me, but at the back of our minds we were probably remembering the recent fashion for pet rocks. A few years earlier, a Californian advertising executive called Gary Dahl came up with the idea of selling painted rocks as pets, an in-joke devised with friends in a late-night bar. These pet rocks wouldn't need feeding, walking or worming, and were guaranteed not to chew the edge of your vintage Azerbaijani carpet. For a mere $4, you got a brightly painted rock with a smiling face and a 32-page instruction book on the proper care of your rock. Of course, sales for these climbed into seven figures, and by the time the craze was over, Dahl was a millionaire. I have no idea how many people were conned into buying a Z-pebble. Maybe they were sold as paperweights, those completely superfluous items which, along with soda streams and fondue sets, are given as presents by many and used by almost no one. As I've already mentioned, another company in our department, called the Acolytes, was also going to Edinburgh. They were premiering three groundbreaking productions dealing with sexual politics, featuring some of the best, most charismatic and most beautiful actors in our university department. We, on the other hand, were taking two old absurdist plays which had been produced in some form, often more than once, at Edinburgh every year for the past two decades. Thankfully, and because some of them were old friends, there was no ill feeling between the two companies. There wasn't even anything that could be described as friendly rivalry. We were both working much too hard to get our companies and productions ready for Edinburgh to bother looking over our shoulders at anyone else. However, Mark and my own shortcomings were highlighted to me just the once when one of the more off-script members of the Acolytes approached me in the student's coffee bar shortly after Z Theatre Company was unveiled. What do you think you're doing with all this Z stuff? she angrily demanded. We're taking the lesson and death watch to Edinburgh, I replied. Huh. You don't stand a chance against us, we're the cool ones. And off she stomped.
And in a sense, she was right. The Acolytes had a prime evening slot in the same venue as us. They had money and resources behind them. Mark and I were a couple of Tyro directors at the nerdier end of the spectrum who genuinely thought we could launch a theatrical adventure by selling hand-painted rocks. We were wannabes, arivists, parvenus, and we were deeply uncool. Was there ever a better reason to take a show to Edinburgh? By mid-August, transplanted to a shabby flat in the Scottish capital and living off spagbol and chips at the Fringe Club, we were thriving. A combination of resourcefulness, sheer chutzpah and a Dunkirk spirit ensured bums on seats and rave reviews. And by writing a promotional parody of The Martian Hop, a 1963 hit for the Randells, we performed on the city streets, I inadvertently sowed the seeds for my own future career on the comedy circuit. More importantly, that adventure on the Edinburgh Fringe cemented friendships which survive over four decades later. The bottom line of success, of course, meant that we recouped our production budget and, much to their astonishment, I repaid my parents the money they lent me and never expected to see again. And that Chinese and Japanese theatre exam for which I didn't fully revise? Considering how I'd stayed up half the night before to embark on my new profession of theatrical impresario, it went better than expected. In the end, I got a fairly mediocre honours degree, one that would see me through life, but might not have been good enough to fast-track me into the civil service. Z Theatre Company still exists within Hull University Drama Department, and so it should. The process of getting a show to Edinburgh with almost no capital and then competing with massive professional companies with huge resources is probably as good an education about the mechanics of how theatre works as any Samuel Beckett lecture or Ibsen seminar. James Graham, often described as our greatest living playwright, had his first public success with Z Theatre Company's 2002 production of his play Coal Not Dole. His incredible career since then is something for which I, through my role as co-founder of Zed, obviously claim full credit. But he still hasn't thanked me. That was The Pebble, written and read by Matthew Diamond, with thanks to Brian and Anna Thompson. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe and leave a review if you can on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 30. Stranded. Three Copeland jugs from the 1870s, identical in every way except for their size. They're decorated in the pale blue and white relief style of Wedgwood Jasperware, as copied by many other potteries, but never looking quite as refined as the original. 
They sit on a kitchen shelf above the spice jars, because we couldn't think where else to put them, and serve no other purpose than to occasionally remind us to dust. One of the joys of travelling is when you end up somewhere you never in your wildest dreams expected to visit. In early December 2012, we flew to Cuba, a country I always wanted to see for myself. Decades previously, I briefly experienced the Eastern Bloc before the Berlin Wall fell. And despite any misgivings about the regimes there, I'm glad I did. But any naive admiration I had for their politics expired in one night. It was at an open-air cinema in the Romanian port city of Constanza, showing a Hollywood film, The Dynamite Man from Glory Jail, starring an old James Stewart. Before the main feature, they ran their equivalent of Pathé News, which concentrated heavily on their leader's state visit to Israel. As soon as President Nikolai Ceausescu appeared, the entire audience applauded. Now, don't get me wrong, there are politicians I've admired in the past, some I've even quite liked, but not one statesman I can recall has ever driven me to spontaneous applause while watching the news. Something at work here wasn't pretty, and any lingering inclination towards Marxist-Leninism I had would dealt a knockout punch that night. But this didn't stop me from looking forward to Cuba. I was fascinated to know how the last bastion of Soviet communism was bearing up in the 21st century. Except we were staying at Varadero, a coastal town developed for the sole purpose of providing foreigners with luxury beach holidays and fleecing them of their hard-earned currency. Very pleasant, but in all honesty, we could have been at any other hotel resort in the world. By contrast, our last four days were spent in Havana, where we could drink in all the history, the politics, the culture, the rum, the music and the rum, or at least as much as having a three-year-old boy in tow would allow. Our flight back to the UK was booked for the evening of the 22nd of December, and we said goodbye to Cuba with one last cocktail and a wander around old Havana before collecting our luggage and hitting the airport. It was there, whilst browsing some or other tacky souvenir shop, that my wife had her bag stolen, containing her purse, her credit cards, and worst of all, both her and our son's passports. There was no time for tears or anxiety. We found a Cuban policeman and he drove us to the nearest police station to report the theft. Despite their command of English not being great and our Spanish even worse, the police couldn't have been more helpful or sympathetic. The duty cop patiently took our details using the last manual typewriter I ever saw in active use, then gave us a lift to the British Embassy so we could request emergency passports and hopefully take the next available flight. The British Embassy, in contrast to the police station, was an armed fortress where guards confiscated our mobile phones before allowing entry. During our interview, it transpired that while they could replace our son's passport that day, there were issues flagged with Anita's application. What issues? The woman behind the bulletproof glass wasn't at liberty to say. How long would these take to resolve? Again, she couldn't say. 
And would we be back in London in time to join our family for Christmas? Probably not. Why couldn't she tell us the reasons for the delay? This information, she said, could not be divulged. I'm trying to manage your expectations, she kept repeating. A sinister expression worthy of a Soviet bureaucrat. We spent Christmas Day on a beach near Havana, swimming and messing around with sandcastles. The only downside was our Christmas lunch, a disgusting microwaved pizza in a nearby bar. Any attempt to explain our plight to friends on social media were met with replies of, Poor you, having to spend Christmas on a tropical beach sipping cocktails. How awful! Which was fair enough. Making the best of things, our enforced stay in Havana gave us the opportunity to explore the city in more detail. There was a museum of archaeology in the restored old town, detailing all the priceless artefacts they had excavated in the past couple of decades whilst tarting the city up. A glass case caught my eye with its bilingual message, Fragment of Copeland's Jug, manufactured circa 1870, Stoke-on-Trent, England. There in the case was half a jug, identical to the largest one sitting above our spice jars, but exhibited as if it were the Rosetta Stone. I turned to Anita. We've got four of these in perfect nick, I said. Do you think they would make us an offer? The exhibit seemed inconsequential. It may have been valuable and exotic to the curators, but to us decadent Brits, it might as well have been a case marked Sony Trinitron Remote Control Unit with Teletext, circa 1983. No batteries. On the 28th of December, the British Embassy, still without giving a reason, managed our expectations further by informing us that Anita could whistle for a passport until at least the new year. By this time we'd had enough of Havana and our crappy hotel on the Malacan Coast Road, so we hopped on a southbound bus to Chienfuegos. We saw in the new year at Rancho Luna, a south coast resort complex with 500 guests and 200 sets of cutlery. I spent the hours approaching midnight in the bar, hearing the life story of a Canadian numismatist visiting Cuba to illegally buy collectible pre-Castro banknotes with smuggled gold bullion, while Anita and our son lay flaked out on a nearby sofa. At ten past midnight, I watched a lavish drag show mime to Carmen Miranda standards outside by the pool. A combination of location, cross-dressing, cigars and rum left me finally forgetting our travails. I was, if only for an hour or two, the embodiment of Ernest Hemingway, sailing through life, aware of its slings and arrows, but too mellow to fight back unless challenged. We awoke the next day to discover the clothes drying on our line outside our chalet were gone. Somewhere in Cuba lived the new owner of some quite snazzy John Lewis pyjamas. On January the 2nd, the emergency passports arrived. Despite a Freedom of Information request with the Home Office, we never discovered why it took a fortnight to deliver a travel document that should have taken a couple of hours. More specifically, we never discovered why, 
during a period when the Home Office were deporting innocent people of colour and pursuing a hostile environment towards immigrants and their families, it took a fortnight for our free and democratic government to allow a blameless British citizen of Indian origin to fly home. But we can hazard a guess. That was Stranded, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. <laughs>